from Aberdeen Investment Trusts. Hello and welcome to today's podcast on the Dunedin Income Growth Investment Trust. I'm Cherry Reynard and with me today is the Trust Manager, Ben Ritchie, and Andy Risk, an ESG analyst on the team. We're here to chat through some of the key issues facing the UK stock market today and how that's influencing positioning on the trust. Welcome, Ben. Welcome, Andy. Now, Ben, there's been a lot happening in markets since the last time we spoke, but perhaps the most significant from a corporate point of view, and certainly for the income sector, has been the imposition of a windfall tax on the large oil companies. Does that worry you? And have any of the holdings in the trust portfolio been affected? Thanks very much, Jay. It's, yes, you're right. There's been an awful lot going on, on uh, in Martin over recent months, one of which has been um, has been windfall taxes. So in terms of the direct impact on the trust, it's, it's relatively modest. We don't own either of the large, big uh, UK oil companies because uh, we, we can't with our uh, sustainable and responsible uh, investing criteria. But we do have a position in, in total that has some exposure uh, to the North Sea and potentially to some parts of the windfall tax. But overall, uh, we don't see that as being a major stock-specific issue for them. Um, perhaps more of a, a risk to us uh, is if we see a windfall tax imposed on electricity generators. Um, our position in SSE, uh, they, they um, have a reasonably large amount of profit that's generated from uh, gas, but also renewable power. So, uh, you know, profit uh, taxes there could potentially be harmful. I think it's probably more one of these uh, political, philosophical things like, is this actually going to achieve the end objective? Is the end objective to lower the cost of energy to consumers at a time where primarily very high gas prices caused largely by the Russia-Ukraine conflict of pushing up the price of both gas and electricity? Um, And I suspect the answer to that is no, windfall taxes won't really make the price of gas go down. Um, And in fact, they may actually increase uh, the cost of energy to consumers over the longer term because it's going to defer investments. Uh, Investments will become more expensive and the cost of capital uh, required to to invest will go up, all of which will ultimately um, probably increase uh, the cost to consumers over the longer term. So I think personally, there are there are smarter ways uh, if you want to address uh, higher gas prices and high electricity prices than levying uh, windfall taxes on the uh, producers of that, aside from the fact that it's quite a complex thing to be able to do and work out and estimate. I think the real risk is, A, you end up sort of deferring investment into an area that desperately needs investment, both from a climate perspective, but also from an energy security perspective. Um, And and then perhaps you end up with unintended consequences of not achieving uh, what it was that you were going to anyway. And at the moment, you know, the government's, uh, at least for the time being, the government's uh, revenue position is, is, is relatively healthy. There's no doubt it, it can afford, it wants to, to mitigate the cost to some degree to consumers. Uh, and as I say, there are probably other smarter things that could be done in terms of the merit order of generation, perhaps within the UK, which is ultimately uh, focusing on what it is that actually sets the electricity price in the first place that perhaps could be done, uh, that at exceptional times, like the times we're in at the moment, could be done to mitigate uh, the impact of uh, of higher gas prices, or there could be uh, subsidies uh, levied, perhaps, or, or issued on gas uh, generation itself. So I think there are a number of other choices from a policy perspective which could be done that would be, I think, better uh, in terms of mitigating the cost to consumers and also uh, continuing to create the right environment for investment. So it's a very, you know, very much, I think, a sort of populist move. It seems like a good idea uh, on face value to levy these evil profit-making companies, 
uh, but it's probably also quite likely that over the longer term, it may actually achieve completely the opposite effect of what it is actually designed to do. Yeah, great. Thank you, Ben. Andy, turning to you, I mean, the d- disruption in energy markets has far broader implications and, and across multiple sectors. Um, I wonder what you've been seeing at recent sort of company AGMs in terms of climate protests and how companies have been addressing those. Yeah, so so obviously the this year's round of AGMs at uh, companies like Shell, HSBC have seen some of the most in the UK, at least public protests uh, from shareholders essentially urging the companies to vastly accelerate their actions on climate change, particularly around reducing the greenhouse gas emissions uh, which they produce, or perhaps if it's a bank, the the emissions of their clients from essentially their financing of um, fossil fuel linked activities. So, I mean, how are companies addressing these issues? I think from our perspective, the thing I would actually highlight is that actually, although the sort of protests you see, which grab the headlines, take place at the AGMs, a lot of the work addressing this actually takes place in the run-up to the AGM. So, in other words, what, what's happening is protest groups and, and people who are not necessarily protesting, but similarly want other investors that want companies to be more uh, ambitious and are very worried about the sort of impacts of climate change, they are tabling for vote at the AGM's uh, shareholder resolutions, which in essence, as I say, they, they call for much, much more ambitious uh, actions to reduce emissions. And so what happens uh, is that the companies are working and engaging with investors like ourselves uh, in the run-up to AGMs, whereby the, maybe the boards, management will explain their positions on why they think the things they support or don't support from these um, opposition resolutions. And in essence, <laughs> trying to urge investors to support the company's existing plans. It's, it's a very, very tricky situation. I think what these discussions do is they help us to understand the nuances of the situation. They help us also to give our feedback to companies because we might, for example, take the view that a company's progress recently, for example, outlining a strategy which is uh, sensible and and perhaps robustly ambitious, at least in the near term, to reduce emissions. We might we might be encouraged by recent actions, but still see areas for improvement or or maybe potential shortcomings in the company's plan. And so therefore we can develop for engagement, giving our feedback back to the company and also help develop our rationales for our voting, which we disclose. So what happens next, I suppose, in circling back to your question about the the protests, it's interesting to point out perhaps that there's a number of shareholders who are voting to support this opposition, the shareholder resolutions, which are calling for more aggressive action on climate change. For example, the company Shell, the support for these resolutions went down this year compared to last year. So that might suggest that majority of investors, maybe they are more supportive of a company's plans and what they're doing. But that being said, I think it was something like 20% of shareholders supported this resolution calling for much more aggressive action. And, and that's not an insignificant number. And so from here, what we see, they will have to address this, let's say, element of discontent and, and over the coming year, probably really further develop the transparency and, um, let's say, ambition of these plans and really show that they are implemented. Ben, again, on the subject of the recent reporting season, I mean, obviously, the economic climate is pretty gloomy. But against that backdrop, company earnings seem to be holding up quite well. 
what have you been seeing from companies' recent reports? And you know, have there have there been any particular themes that you'd highlight? So the corporate earnings you know, continue to be reasonably resilient, but, but it's undoubtedly, I think, the case that the pressures are starting uh, to build. So when I, I look back to the last month or so, you know, we've actually seen some pretty good results from the likes of Pets at Home. So even in the UK retail space, you know, they have a strong position in a niche um, that probably allows them to, to price ahead of inflationary costs. Um, and something which is discretionary, but mm, sort of not that discretionary. You know, you kind of need to look after your after your pets. So that that sort of I think continues to do okay. It's no doubt a challenging environment, but the recent results are pretty good. And you know, they put the dividend up by a lot. They announced the share buyback. They've got a very uh, strong balance sheet. Um, so we think that's uh, you know quite interesting. Um, we also saw a pretty good results from Intermediate Capital Group, which is one of the UK's. Uh, leading uh, private equity and um, sort of specialist debt investors. Again, they brought forward their fundraising targets by a year, uh, put up the dividend by a very nice amount, and at the same time also a signal that they were going to be uh, strengthen their balance sheet uh, and, and run with a, a slightly stronger position going forward. So again, you know, appetite for private markets, performance of their products, all still doing okay. Yes, there are you know concerns about what the uh, downturn in the economy might mean for them, but overall still performing quite well. So. You know, the income outturn has still been pretty good. I think corporates that we invest in currently have generally been, you know, giving pretty robust updates. Um, uh, but, you know, absolutely, we're very aware that you know, all of the data that we can see from the macro picture shows that consumers are pulling their horns in. Companies are becoming more cautious. Input costs remain high. You know, that's, you know, that's a combination that's likely to be tough to manage uh, for companies. And so I think it's probably realistic to expect that life is going to get more difficult. We like to think that the companies we invest in are more robust than average. Um, you know, they won't be completely immune, but we think that in a tougher environment, then, you know, our exposure should hopefully put us in, in good stead. But we'll have to, you know, wait and see. And I think to some degree that the proof of the pudding will be in, in the eating ultimately as we move through the next six to 12 months of, of this sort of period, which is likely to be, I think, pretty volatile and quite, quite tough for companies and investors. Andy, turning to you, I mean, engagement is obviously a very important part of um, Aberdeen's process. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the company's been engaging on behalf of the trust in terms of voting. I mean, have you been focused on any particular issues and uh, perhaps are there any successful stories you could highlight? I mean, I think in terms of voting, we've voted against management in various companies which the trust holds over the past year or so for a, for a number of reasons. And I highlight sort of voting against because that's often the, the thing that's sort of tested most uh, in the sense of uh, are we sort of considering what the board management are proposing, uh, various AGMs, and are we supporting management in all cases or maybe we are pushing for, for, for change or pushing for higher standards. And so sort of reasons we have voted against uh, the board across companies held in the funded last year might be things like excessive pay, might be um, lack of board diversity. There have been cases where we've raised concerns about the tenure of the audit firm, which, which may have been around for too long. That might raise risks of independence. And these are just a few examples maybe of, of how we voted. I, I suppose it's really important to highlight that voting is just one part of engagement. And 
and to, while voting might take place maybe once a year, engagement is, is ongoing. And, and we use these opportunities through meeting companies to really push for better practice or various times through the year. So the sort of things that we would look for now or the things we might be sort of testing companies on or pushing for better practice would be heavily around um, similar to what Ben's talking about this human capital management side because as we all know in the aftermath of COVID lots of people have looked for new jobs um, in the current environment and high inflation lots of people are demanding higher wages so you really want to see from companies how they are um, let's say how they are developing their employee proposition and, and sort of trying to mitigate these pressures. We're, we're looking for from companies now is how they're thinking about their management of climate change risk, particularly as we see increasingly around the world, more and more examples of physical impacts of climate change. So, so there's a lot of lot of stuff going on. I guess I guess in terms of success stories, to be honest, I actually, I actually quite like the example of uh, SSE, which Ben mentioned earlier, because that's a case in point where it's generally regarded as a leader on, on ESG, but where we all, we, we've seen for some time off uh, areas where we could work with them to sort of give our feedback and try and push for even greater, uh, even better performance. And and on the back of the company's efforts, you see in, in recent years, for example, it's its score on various sort of benchmarks and, and ratings like the Climate Action 100 score has, has improved, which, which we like to see. And, and that's an interesting case because it's where a company has increasingly moved into investment in renewables sort of overlap with the sustainability angle and therefore you see greater let's say collaboration between Aberdeen and the company and different parts of Aberdeen so for example they uh, obviously the new investment requires input from our investment analysts the sustainability and renewable side requires input from the ESG people and the company has also this year proposed a new uh, remuneration policy which includes greater focus on sustainability metrics and again that's sort of input where Aberdeen can engage for, with our remuneration and compensation specialists and also the ESG guys to to really try and get the best possible outcome for our clients. Ben the last couple of questions are more sort of philosophical questions so about the trust. One thing I was interested in was, I mean, the trust is very concentrated compared to many of your peers at just 37 holdings. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why you've done that and the kind of risks and benefits of that approach. Yes, I think it's certainly been one of the directions of travel for the trust is to concentrate our holdings. That's been something which we've done over a number of years. And I think when we set out at the beginning of 2016, one of the things we wanted to do was differentiate the, the trust from its competitors. One of those things was about being more active and focused in terms of what we were uh, looking to do from a portfolio perspective. Um, and so I actually feel pretty comfortable that the, you know, the, the, the historic data says that fund managers do better when they, when they concentrate their, their positions. They do better when they put more money in the companies that they like. And generally, it's the long tail of holdings at, at small positions that, that actually detract from value. So you know, I think it comes back a little bit to the Kind of Warren Buffett type approach to that, you know, I, I, I'd rather put a, a more money into things I know better in a relatively concentrated approach than have money scattered across lots of different holdings. And, you know, I personally find it easier to keep track of 37 investment cases than I do to keep on track of 90. Now, you know, other people have different views on how they want to go about doing things. Um, but I think it's important that when we do make decisions, we're putting meaningful amounts of capital behind the research so that we can generate, you know, attractive returns on the back of those investments. And, 
Um, and also that we're relatively disciplined in terms of putting capital work in new ideas because it's very easy to you know, work on a very iterative basis and hit along comes another nice shiny idea and I'll just pop it in the portfolio. Uh, but it's also about how the different assets work together within the portfolio, about the different exposures that you've got. We've got to think about our SRI criteria, we've got to think about our income uh, generation as well. Um, so all of those things you know, lead me to be relatively comfortable with the number of stocks that we have in the portfolio. I think you've also got to look at the, at the top uh, concentration as well, so of our, of our major holdings. So we have sort of five, six percent positions. Biggest position in the trust is AstraZeneca, but then the benchmark weighting for Astra is nearly seven percent. So we're not uh, really significantly overweight Astra at all. And so in terms of the concentration of our bigger holdings, I don't think we're sort of particularly different to a, a number of our competitors. It's just that we don't have that longer tail of smaller holdings. Finally, I wonder if you could just sort of remind the listeners of the investment criteria that you're you're looking for when you're analysing a new opportunity? The journey and sort of thinking around that sort of starts at, at the high level. So the, the first thing is, you know, we've got comprehensive coverage of the UK market. Um, and then we sort of uh, apply our sustainable and responsible investing criteria. That, that screens out about 25% of the market. Then we're really looking to focus in on the really good companies in the, in the, in the market. In our experience, that's probably about 15% of the of the, of the universe uh, and then we're also looking for companies that can also meet our income criteria so we do compromise a little bit on quality compared to some of our strategies where there are attractive yields uh, available and then the sort of other step is then looking at the stocks which our analysts are, are recommending as as buys and that they expect them to outperform the market over time so it's very much that idea of sustainable criteria first exclude the things we can't invest in focusing on good quality companies with an income consideration overlay and then think about the total return potential and then when it comes to constructing the portfolio ideally Cherry what we're looking for it, you know would be 35 completely different businesses with completely different economic exposures that can give us a really nice diverse blend of, of profits and dividends uh, as well and of course that never quite happens but that's what we're really looking to do and ideally you know, looking to find businesses that we're comfortable to put money into for the long term and we don't have to spend <laughs> too, too much time worrying about on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and, you know, at times like this where markets are uncertain, economies are uncertain, you know, the fact that we, uh, I think, have that, that sort of quality focus and spend quite a lot of time on trying to underpin the downside on our investment thinking, you know, is important. And I suspect as we move forward over the coming months, uh, it will probably become more important as well. So that's how we think about taking, you know, ideas from the start of the process all the way through to the portfolio. Thank you, Ben and Andy as well for those insights today. You can find out more about the trust at www.dunedinincomegrowth.co.uk. And thank you so much for tuning in. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. 
The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only, or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections, or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.